You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. With that, please turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, New Testament. And there is a... uh, there's a phrase that as the Lord has sort of led us in this ministry and this gathering of believers that we're calling the way, just naming it the way because that's what the first Christians were referred to as the way of Jesus. Um, there's a phrase that has sort of just become the catchphrase that I use for it, and it is Jesus is everything. That's sort of our motto, our slogan, our catchphrase, whatever you want to call it. That's what I want to be known by. The phrase or the, or the statement that Jesus is everything because at the center of all of our theology, everything we know about God is Jesus. At the center of all of our practice, meaning how we pursue that knowledge of God through Jesus, is Jesus. He's the high mark for us. He's the one that we look at and that we say, okay, we see who Jesus is. We're now going to pursue him, and we're also going to obey him, which is sort of what we're going to talk about today in regard to the practice of our faith. And that's the word I want you to latch on to today. If you walk out and are like, what did we talk about at church today? The answer is faith. It's still fourth period, guys. Come on. Like, couldn't get your attention but I need you here with me. Today, we're going to talk about faith. So when you leave and you say, what did we talk about at church today? The answer is going to be, thank you. Amen. You all get A's. Awesome. So here you go. So, so here's the thing. When we talk about faith, we have to draw a distinction between faith and belief. In the scripture, very often, it can seem as though faith and belief are interchangeable terms. And they are related, but there is a distinction between faith and belief. We've seen this recently. Uh, I I made reference to the letter of James, chapter 2, a while ago. But let me refresh your memory. Um, The whole concept of believing in something is fairly simple. And it's pretty universal in a lot of respects, even in regard to God or specifically to Jesus. Let me show you what James says. James is talking about the faith of a person that is saved and how that faith looks and what it sort of acts like. And and here's what he says in James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith By my works. And then look at what he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one. The reference there is to the Hebrew Shema, that the Lord God is one God, right? And we understand that in our New Testament understanding is that it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that we serve a Trinitarian God, right? And that they are one. Now, this is a whole other teaching. This will blow your mind. Like, God is one, but he's three persons in that oneness. That's like a... Anyway, it'll keep you up at night. Anyway, this is the phrase that that James makes, though. You believe that God is one, and you do well. That's good that you believe that, but look at what he says. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
So when we talk about belief, understand that belief is, in Scripture is not necessarily synonymous with the type of belief that we would say saves us. There is a general kind of belief in the spiritual nature of things in the world. The demons who serve Satan, not God, they believe in Jesus. They acknowledge his reality and who he is even, but they don't trust in him. They don't place their faith in him. So there's a difference between belief and faith, and that's what we have to sort of um, distinguish between today. And again, uh, the whole idea of belief is fairly easy. Belief can be very general and not defined. This is sort of the definition of someone who is agnostic, someone who says, I believe that there's something, something spiritual in nature, something perhaps cosmic or eternal, but that person is either unable to or unwilling to define what that is, specifically within the framework of a religious system or a spiritual discipline of some kind. And that, that's, that's agnosticism, admitting that maybe there's something out there, we just don't know what it is. And that may seem sort of nice on the surface, right? To say, well, I'll define my own spirituality. I'll figure out who God is, whoever he or she or it or whatever may be, God to me. That, that seems sort of attractive because then it keeps us away from things like dogmatism and specific doctrines and judgment and those kinds of things. But there's a problem with that philosophy because here's what happens. If you or I create God in our understanding, God is then smaller than us. You catch that? If we start defining who God is by our own values, by the things that we want God to look like, God starts looking like you and like me versus God being transcendent and creative and in control of all of the universe. There has to be in this created realm something that has authority. We define that as Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That's who has authority for us. Now, that's, that's belief. Belief has this general nature to it, not easily defining things or holding on to a specific teaching. Faith, on the other hand, the definition of faith in the scripture is this, the complete and total submission or reliance upon the authority of a specific deity or religious practice. You can listen to the teaching to take notes on that later. But, but this is the idea of faith. Faith is not just simple belief. I believe, Jesus, that you exist. The demons believe, and they even shudder. They know who Jesus is. Faith, on the other hand, is the complete submission to Jesus, or it's the complete reliance upon who Jesus is and the spiritual disciplines or the religious framework around who Jesus is. See, back here again in James chapter 2, we just heard about the demons believing in Jesus, and they shudder. They know who he is. But again, this is what James would say in um, verse 14, a couple verses up. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
See, this is the defining characteristic between faith and belief, right? Faith is this submission to authority. This is what that verse means. You can't claim to have faith in something and then not be engaged in obeying the teachings and works of that theological or spiritual structure. There's a, there's a connection to those things. And this is a hard teaching, and perhaps this isn't something you've heard in evangelical churches, but this is the reality of it. If someone says, I have faith, I said, Jesus, I believe in you, come into my heart and be my savior, but then the rest of their life, they live like they don't know who Jesus is, the frightful warning of scripture is that there's a real good chance that that person's faith was not genuine. Now, praise the Lord. Thank God you and I don't have to judge that. That's not our place to judge those things. God, the judge at the end of time, will judge those things. But what that statement and that truth does for me shakes me to my core, brings me to the place of saying, if I believe in Jesus and I know who he is and I've heard the testimony of his life, death, and resurrection for my sins, and I want what he has to give me, I want forgiveness, I want peace, I want meaning and purpose in my life that's going to last beyond my days on earth. If I want the promise and hope of eternity without sin in the presence of God, then the responsibility that I have is to pursue the things of Jesus, to do those works that Jesus did and the things that he commanded and taught us to do in the scripture. And that's what we're going to do today in Mark chapter 2, is take a look at some examples of the difference between belief and faith. And those who have faith, actual submission to Jesus or reliance upon Jesus's power, what that looks like in their life. So take a look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read this whole section and then we're going to go back and take a look at a couple things very specifically. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So there's four people who are carrying a guy on some sort of stretcher or mat or something of the sort. And they're coming to Jesus so that Jesus might heal their friend. Because it's already happened that Jesus, the fame of Jesus and what he has done for people has gone out into the surrounding areas. That Jesus heals people. And so they bring their, their buddy along. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, check this out, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I say a lot of times that there's a favorite scripture of mine or a favorite story. This is the one, guys. Don't ever, don't ever mistake it. This is my favorite story in the Bible, 110%. In that day and age, houses weren't like ours. They didn't have pitched roofs in the Middle East there, they had flat roofs, and oftentimes the roofs were just made of uh, organic material of some kind, either sod or there were uh, palm branches or those kinds of things. So it wasn't like they were trying to hammer through a composite or anything like that, right? They literally got up and they just started tearing the roof off. These four friends with their friend who was, who was paralyzed and they wanted him to be healed, which is an indication that he had previously not been paralyzed, but then was paralyzed for some reason. And they hear about this Jesus who heals, and they come, and there's all these people listening to him, and they know he's in the house. They're like, we can't get to him, but we have to get to him. We believe, and we have 
faith that Jesus can heal. We're willing to submit ourselves to his authority so that he might heal our friend. What are we going to do? We can't get in. There's too many people. Hey, I got an idea. Let's climb up on the roof and let's just flip and tear the roof off the place. And then let's get our friend down to Jesus. And then maybe Jesus will heal him. Like, let's do that. Right? Let's continue with the story. Verse 5. And when Jesus, mark this, mark this. And when Jesus saw their faith. Okay. Sorry to keep pausing. But listen. Jesus didn't hear about their faith. He didn't, he didn't trust that they had faith. Jesus saw their faith, meaning that the faith that they had, their, their, their submission to Jesus' authority, their reliance upon Jesus for, to be the one who would heal, they, he saw it in action. These guys were tearing the roof off just to get their buddy down to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, the one on the mat, son, your sins are forgiven. We'll talk more about this on Wednesday, but there seems to be an indication that the reason he was paralyzed was because of some sort of sin that he had committed in his life. And Jesus, rather than just saying, you're now healed and you can get up and walk, Jesus says and said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes who were a part of the Jewish leadership were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus speaking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I always find these stories funny because in my mental picture of things, it's like the guy's laying there, he's paralyzed, he can't move. Jesus says, your sons are forgiven. We, with the scribes in their hearts are like, what on earth? If he says that he can forgive sins, he's claiming to be God. Jesus, knowing in his heart that they were questioning him, says, hey, which one's easier? To say your, sons are for, your sins are forgiven or rise and take up your bed and walk, right? If you ever hear the claim that Jesus never said he was God, turn to Mark chapter 2. By Jesus saying your sins are forgiven, he is claiming to be God. It, it's, there's no way around that. There's no other way to explain that. Jesus is claiming deity here, the ability to forgive sins. And then, so that they could see that he has that authority. He also says, get up, get up, take up the mat that they brought you in and walk out the door. And, and then it says immediately, right? He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. All I see in my brain is the guy sort of laying on the floor. Jesus says, be healed. He just like pops up, looks around, grabs his mat and marches off out the door. Like that's just what I see in my brain. Whether that happened or not that way, I just see those things because it says immediately. Like the guy didn't even stop pass, go, collect $100. He just got up and started walking. Now, that's amazing to me. When we look at this story, take a look at the last couple verse, verses, or rather the last verse, verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
Now, here's the thing. We have to also read between the lines here. There were those who said, this is amazing, we never saw this kind of thing before. But there were also people there who were saying, how dare he? How dare he claim to be able to forgive sins? Now those religious leaders at the time, those scribes, they had to believe in Jesus. He was right in front of them. He, he, he was doing the miracles like they believed in that sense, but they didn't submit to his authority. They didn't have faith in him, while others submitted to Jesus' authority not only to forgive sins, but to heal as well. They relied upon his authority. They relied on who he was. Again, belief is easy, and the story of Jesus, as you read it throughout the gospel accounts, includes lots of people who believed. But faith is hard. The scripture also details many people who, it says, turned away from Jesus. They didn't trust in him. They didn't rely on his authority. They didn't submit themselves to his authority. Please don't let anyone ever tell you that following Jesus is easy. Don't let anyone tell you that, that salvation as we know it is easy. Oftentimes in the proclamation of the gospel, there's an accusation that you Christians who, who talk about just believing in Jesus and, and receiving grace, boy, you, you treat grace it's like it's this cheap thing. Like it's just so easy. Grace for everything. Oh, I sinned again. Oh, here's grace. Listen, grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus everything for the grace of God to be poured out upon our lives. Cost him his life. And he gave it, the Bible says, willingly. He gave his life to us willingly so that our sins could be forgiven, not counted against us eternally. This is the idea. One of the greatest disservices and I think one of the false paradigms that, that has been unleashed upon the modern church is the phrase, uh, just believe. All you got to do is believe. Believe and receive, right? And I get the intent of it. I get the heart of it. And someone might argue with me and say, well, come on, Luke, on like Romans 10, 9, just believe in your heart that God raised Jesus up from the grave and you'll be saved. Isn't that what Romans 10, 9 says? Yes, but you have to read the full context of that verse. It says that you also have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then believe in your heart that God raised him up from the grave. See, there is this activity that we engage in with God. God draws us by his Holy Spirit. God's grace is given to us through Jesus' sacrificial death and, and the hope of eternity given to us through his resurrection. We don't do anything to earn that or to deserve that. It's quite simply God's goodness, his kindness, his mercy that he shows to us, that he makes a way for us to be reconciled, brought back into relationship with him. But what he does require is for you and for me to acknowledge that, to confess that. To say, I need to be saved. 
I, I know lots of testimonies and stories of people who, having been at church or a camp of some kind, having heard the gospel message and even being convicted of it, but in that moment, being fearful for some reason of public retribution or not wanting to make that statement out loud, sort of the embarrassment of that moment, finding their way off to some secluded place or to a bathroom stall or whatever the case might be, and saying, God, I believe in you in my heart. Isn't that good enough for me to be saved? According to the scripture, it says that you have to confess. You actually have to say, I believe in you, Jesus. And not only that, but the commandment of Jesus in making disciples was to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is an outward expression of the work that's done in our hearts that is a part of our salvation. And after that, the pursuing of the things of God, the pursuing of the things that Jesus commands and teaches. Now, here's the thing. This is the caveat that we all have to take in. That ain't easy. That's not a simple process. As we see throughout Scripture, that having faith, submitting to Jesus, is hard. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a consistent and constant renewal and reaffirmation of our faith. So that when we do fall down on our faces and, and look at our lives and go, what have I been doing? I believe in Jesus. I just haven't been consistently putting my faith in him. Lord, I confess I'm a sinner and I need your grace. And we come back again and again and again. When we look at those four friends who had the kind of faith that said, man, our buddy needs Jesus. I don't know anything else, but all I know is that my friend who's paralyzed he needs to get to Jesus. So what are we going to do? There's crowds. There's obstructions. There's things in the way. Well, we're just going to make it happen. We're going to jump up on the roof. We're going to tear the roof off the place. We're going to get our buddy down to Jesus because he needs to get to Jesus. What is it that brings out that kind of faith? What is it that, that draws us to that kind of faith? I, I want to tell you that there's, there's two examples I want to show you this morning, rather, about how that kind of faith is developed and why having faith is not easy, but it's worth the struggle to get it. Mark down Genesis chapter 32, please. There's this story in the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 32, and it's talking about Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, patriarchs of the faith, the, the, the fathers as they're called. And Jacob, uh, being a sneaky son of a gun, uh, stole his brother's blessing, Esau. Esau was the older brother, and he was supposed to have this blessing from his father where he was supposed to inherit land and inherit all of his possessions and all these kinds of things. And Esau, being a foolish, foolish man as well, sold his inheritance for a bowl of bean stew. That's really what it was, lentils. And if that's not worth it, come on. But he was, he was like, oh, I'm going to die. Give me the, that stew that you made for me, Jacob. And he says, oh, I'll give it to you, but give me your inheritance. Give me your position as the older brother. And Esau goes, fine, take it. Just give me the stew. And all of a sudden, Jacob now has this inheritance, even though he was the younger brother. And he knows he, he did wrong. <laughs> he knows he's guilty. And so he runs off and spends time out for years and years away. And then he comes back to come back into the land that God had promised him that was his inheritance. But he's fearful of his brother Esau. And so he's making all these plans about where he's going to put his wife and kids and his possessions, and he's separating them all out and sending them across the river and all these kinds of things. And here, before he meets up with Esau again, this is where, what happens right before. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. 
The same night he arose and took two, his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Now watch this. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Please take note that in the development of our faith, oftentimes it comes through wrestling with God. There is a reality to our pursuit of Jesus and the things of God that there are moments in time where we just don't get it. We don't understand what's going on and perhaps we're even fearful of the circumstances in life. And we feel as though we're, we're wrestling with God. Please understand that that is okay. That it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to question God. If God wasn't the God that we believe in, if he wasn't big enough to be able to deal with our doubts, he wouldn't be a God that was worthy to be worshipped. If God wasn't big enough to deal with your fear or my fear or our anxieties, he's not a God that's big enough to do anything about those fears or anxieties. It's okay to wrestle with God and understand this, that in that wrestling, there will come a blessing if you do not let go. The problem with people who have lost their faith is that in their wrestling, in their doubts, in their fears, they just stopped. They let go. Jacob, on the other hand, he held on. And he says, I'm going to just hang on to you for all it's worth. So much so that God actually like wounds him a little bit. He gives him a, 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 an issue of some kind. So much so that it's said that to the day of his death, he had to walk with a limp. That Jacob had this limp. Do you realize that some of the greatest saints in the faith walk with a limp? That there are scars that, that stay on us because of our experiences in trying to hold on to God and figure things out and receive from him the blessing that he has to give us. It's okay to wrestle with God. Just don't let go. He will bless you, even if it comes at a cost of some kind. You may walk with a limp, but you'll receive a blessing. That's an Old Testament example of how faith is developed. I've seen God face to face. I've wrestled with him, and I've come out on the other side. I may walk with a limp. I may have some wounds, but he has blessed me. Faith is built in that way. A New Testament example as well is in, is in uh, 2 Corinthians. Mark this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, you know, we look at the Apostle Paul as 
Obviously, this guy in the New Testament who wrote a large portion of the epistles and was such a powerful figure, and so it's easy perhaps to put him up on a pedestal and think like there's the Apostle Paul and then there's the rest of us nobodies trying to pursue Jesus. But let me show you what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 2 says this, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you, and I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the persecution and affliction that he receives because of his pursuit of Jesus and the ministry of the gospel. Take note of that. And look at how he says they were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without, conflict in the flesh, and mark this, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Mark this. Godly comfort in our life comes from honesty with God. God can handle your honesty. God can handle your fear. If the Apostle Paul had fear in his life in regard to his mission, don't you know it's okay that you and I have fears about the things that God has called us to do? It's okay to have fear in the face of what Jesus would say our mission is to go out and make disciples, to build this kingdom that, that he's the king over. Paul, in all of his devotion and all of his sort of unflappable nature in, in, in the ministry, admits that there's fear. He's honest and he's transparent with himself, with God, and with the church. You realize he wrote that down for the church to hear. There was no putting on an act. Oh no, guys, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm doing pretty great. I'm okay. Nope, I'm not fearful. I'm bold as a lion. That's me, the Apostle Paul. No, Paul's like, actually, I've been in the sea for two nights. I've had people whip me almost to death. I've had people who I thought were friends turn on me and abandon me, and I've been afraid for my life, but I've also just been afraid of what it is that you're calling me to do. There's an honesty and a transparency to what the Apostle Paul is doing that's a model for you and I. Because through that transparency and honesty of the fears that we might have in the faith, what happens? He's comforted. God comforts him. And says, I've also put people around you who are faithful. And the comfort that they've received in their life, they're going to comfort you with that comfort. And then when you receive comfort, you can go comfort somebody else who's experiencing trial or fear. That's how that works. I think if we were honest with ourselves and if we knew the internal lives of most of the well-known pastors and theologians and missionaries in the world, I think we'd all be shocked at how, how much internal struggle there is when someone is pursuing the mission of Jesus. Where even on the outside, they may seem confident, they may seem bold, and they may seem like God's using them in big ways, but if you get behind that, 
most of the psychosis of those people is that they feel like they're not worthy, that they feel like there's no way that God can use them. They doubt the effectiveness of what they're saying and what they're doing. They're no different than you or me. But here's the thing. The difference is if we allow ourselves to submit to the authority of Jesus in all of those things, we'll be comforted, we'll be blessed, we'll be shown that the things that we're doing because of God's grace through Jesus Christ, they're gonna leave a mark on us. But it will build up faith, I believe, to the point that when we see the value of Jesus, have as hard as it is to hold on to him all the time, as hard as it is to just go, no, I'm not gonna let go, I don't care what happens, I think what happens is we build up faith to the point that you and I become that person that are like, I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna get everybody to Jesus. I know people in my life that need Jesus. They're wounded, they're paralyzed, they're hurt, something's wrong with them. I can't fix it, you can't fix it, but Jesus can fix it. So I need to get them to Jesus. How am I gonna do it? I don't know. If the door's packed and there's not enough, I, tear the roof off. Mike, sorry, like, I don't know, people may be coming through the roof next week. I'd be okay, through the window, I'd do it. Our desire should be to become people of faith in that regard. One of the reasons that this story is, is so impactful for me is years ago, I've talked about this guy before. There's a guy named Gordy Erickson who went home to be with the Lord about three years ago. He was an elder at the church that we were at when we were first married. Gordy had done everything in the faith and he had walked with the Lord faithfully for years and years and years. And I would meet with him periodically, especially at moments of crisis in my life, just sort of like, Gordy, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't even know if like God can use me. Like, what's the deal? Like, am I in the Lord's will? That was always my big question. How do I know if I'm in the Lord's will? He's like, Luke, are you like, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do you read your Bible? Yes. Do you pray? Yes. You would have to be in utter rebellion against God to not be in his will, is what he would tell me. But he would always encourage me as well with this story from Mark chapter 2. Say, Luke, be the kind of guy that's willing to tear the roof off to get people to Jesus. I think that's something that could define you and I in our fellowship. That we would do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. 